Good morning, once again. The title of today's sermon is The Lord's Arrival. Over the past couple of weeks we've seen through Mark chapter 1 and the first eight verses that it's all been preparing for the Lord's arrival. But now, from verse 9, Jesus steps into the public arena. So turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark uh, opens his account of the gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preaching of the need for repentance, a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of action and direction away from sin and back to God. He was preaching of the need for a baptism of repentance, a sign uh, that they truly had humbled themselves and repented before God that they might receive his forgiveness. He was preaching of the need to be prepared for the coming Lord, the one whose ministry would surpass his own. His was a token baptism with water, but that would soon be replaced by a tangible baptism with the Holy Spirit. The reality of what John the Baptist preached would be fulfilled in this coming Lord. Before Jesus begins his public ministry. He then comes out to John and submits himself to the baptism that John is preaching. And it's an extraordinary event, uh, which includes both testimony about his identity and a time of testing to prove his identity. And the question before us all is, will we be among those who have ears to hear And eyes to see that the Lord Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. Now the Lord's arrival in this passage is marked by four things. And the first of which is an acceptance of his mission. Let me read verse 9 again. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. There's a couple of things to note to begin with here. Number one, in the days that John the Baptist was proclaiming about the one to come, along comes the one to come. The Lord arrived, and his name was Jesus. But the second thing we note is that this Lord did not arrive in a particularly credentialed manner. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. And you have to say it like that. Nazareth of Galilee. 
Because Nazareth is an obscure little town in the lower region of Galilee. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Compared to the the region of Judea, which is in southern Israel, uh, where we find the capital of Jerusalem, Galilee was in the northern region of Israel. And really, Galilee to Judea was the other side of the tracks. But for those in Galilee, Nazareth was the other side of the tracks. One of Jesus' disciples, uh, Nathaniel, he came from a town uh, called Cana, uh, which was in Galilee, but it was slightly to the north of Nazareth. And we read in John 1 verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The uh, implication is absolutely not. Not from that place. No way. Now remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, His family uh, was from Nazareth, though. They lived in Nazareth. Uh, But when Caesar Augustus issued a decree uh, that uh, everyone heads back to their original hometown uh, and take part in the census, well, the family headed down to Bethlehem uh, at the time Jesus was born. Uh, After his birth, uh, Herod gets narky, hearing that there is a, a new king that has arrived and Uh, The family is warned to head down to Egypt uh, to escape. And then after Herod dies, uh, the family then returns to Nazareth. We read in Matthew 2, verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament uh, is there any mention of uh, the Messiah coming from the town of Nazareth. Uh, But what Matthew picks up here is what all the Old Testament prophets uh, allude to and explain that the Messiah would be despised. Uh, So when he says he will be called a Nazarene, he's pointing to all those prophetic utterances that say that this Messiah will be despised and rejected by men. And And how more appropriate than that he comes from the town of Nazareth. The other side of the other side of the tracks. So Jesus didn't arrive with the pomp and the glamour uh, that you might expect from royalty. He was born into lowly circumstances. He came with lowly beginnings. But all this emphasises the kind of mission that he came to carry out and the humility uh, that he carried it out with. Now, one question, if Jesus went out to experience John's baptism of repentance, was it because he had something to repent of? Of course, the answer is no. Um, In Matthew's account, we're told of John's hesitation in baptising Jesus. No, 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 you should be baptising me, not the other way around. In the Apostle John's account of the Gospel, he records John the Baptist's words when he he saw Jesus coming to be baptised. Read in John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the spotless Lamb, blemishless, sinless. Jesus did not need to repent of anything, and John, of course, knew that. So, why be baptized? Well, firstly, he is. 
accepting an identification with sinners. He's accepting an identification with sinners. One uh, writer paints a wonderful picture when he says this. Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Now in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus' first public message is clear about the need for repentance. He does not hold back. But in his first public action, he points to how salvation would be made possible for sinners. He would lower himself and take their place. He would identify with them that they might identify with him. So he's accepting to identify with sinners. Secondly, he's accepting the testimony of John the Baptist. Jesus wanted to identify with the message that John had been preaching. By allowing John to baptise him, he was testifying that what John had shared about the need for repentance and forgiveness was true. In Mark chapter 11, uh, Jesus... um, Uh, testifies that John's baptism indeed was from God. So he's accepting the testimony of John the Baptist. Thirdly, he's accepting the righteous requirements of God. Matthew spells this out in his gospel account when he records Jesus' words. So we read in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said, It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to live in obedience to all that God had commanded, everything, uh, which included undergoing the baptism that God had commanded John to carry out for the people. And in Matthew 5 verse 17, we hear these words from Jesus. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to Fulfill them. So Jesus has come to identify with sinners that he might take upon himself the punishment for their sin. But he's also come to live a life in obedience to God. That his righteousness, his righteous standing before God might be credited or imputed to sinners through faith they might experience not only forgiveness, but a justified declaration before God. The mission Jesus accepts is summed up beautifully by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So at the Lord's arrival, we see an acceptance of his mission. Secondly, the Lord's arrival is marked by an anointing with the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here is such an incredible 
visual testimony to inaugurate the Lord's arrival. While Mark records this from the perspective of Jesus, where he says he saw, that is Jesus looked up and saw this, we know from the wider profession of Scripture that this was not merely for Jesus' eyes only. In John chapter 1, verse 32, we read, And John, this is John the Baptist, he bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It wasn't just for Jesus' eyes only. Now, as Jesus came up out of the waters of the Jordan too, there are two visual spectacles that immediately occur here. And that word immediately, that favourite word of Mark, uh, gives a sense of awe, um, immediately heightens attention here. As he came up out of the water, immediately these things were seen. And the first thing he saw was the heavens being torn open. That's not a neat little opening that can be then resealed. No, it's torn open, teared apart. In Mark 15 verse 38, we read, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, never to be put back together again. It indicates that this was a once-off, that things can't go back to the way they were before. Indeed, this is the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophetic word. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, we read this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah's prayer is that God would come down and make his presence known. The writer of the Hebrews declares that this has indeed happened. And he opens with these words, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So in Christ Jesus, God has made his presence known. He has rendered the heavens. There is no going back from this point. That's the first visual. The second visual is that Jesus looked up and saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so here we have this dramatic contrast between the the powerful display of the heavens being ripped apart We find the Spirit gently descending upon him like a dove. The symbolism of the dove is not entirely spelled out here in Mark, but there are certainly allusions from other scriptures as to what that means. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus is sending out the apostles uh, on their first uh, preaching mission. And he says... Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep, or sorry, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Innocent as doves uh, tells us they were to act with honesty, integrity, gentleness. So, in the sense of Mark chapter 1, we see the holiness 
of this Spirit. Then in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That reminds us of the creative activity of the Spirit. It brings the thought that this new creative work is about to begin. One writer puts it this way, God's Spirit on Jesus like a dove was a sign that this new creation had begun. The beginning of the Gospel then is also the beginning of a new creation. This time, however, the Spirit hovers over a human being, not over a formless void, which suggests that God intends to transform humanity. Now, the descent of the Holy Spirit does not mean that God the Son was prior to this moment somehow separated from God the Holy Spirit. There is unity in uh, always between the Father, Son and Spirit. Scripture testifies that Jesus was born into this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was filled with the Spirit at all times. So Jesus was not, as some attest, merely an ordinary man and he only became the Christ the moment the Spirit descended on him. Well, if that's what it doesn't mean, what does it mean? Well, while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully human, the two natures in the one person. The Spirit's anointing is to empower his humanity, his human nature for ministry. And it fulfills two key prophetic scriptures from Isaiah that speak of the coming Messiah. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. There shall come forth a fruit from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It's at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, at the end, in chapter 61, verse 1, we read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Indeed, when Jesus... Uh, later preaches in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, we find in Luke chapter 4 that this is the passage uh, that he opens up to when the scroll's handed to him. And after he's read it out loud, he sits down and says, Today, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the last days, God would pour out his spirit on his people, but this would be preceded by his pouring the spirit on the Messiah. Now, as all Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit the moment we're saved, anointed by Him to empower us for ministry, so here Jesus, uh, while not having any sin to be saved from, is nonetheless empowered in His human nature 
for ministry by the Holy Spirit. And this visual display of this action serves to both encourage and to explain to all present that this is indeed what has occurred. So at the Lord's arrival we see an anointing with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the Lord's arrival is marked by an affirmation from the Father. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So as well as the visual testimonies, we now have a verbal testimony to add to it. Uh, If I can deal briefly with a point of contention that uh, some have put forward to discredit uh, the inerrancy of Scripture uh, from this verse right here. Uh, In Mark and Luke's account, the heavenly voice declares, You are my beloved Son. Whereas in Matthew's account, the heavenly voice declares, This is my beloved Son. I'm not sure whether you've ever picked up on that before. Why are Mark and Luke in the second person, while Matthew is in the third person? And the answer, obviously, uh, to some, is that this is a contradiction. And as such, this is an error in Scripture. But is that the case? Can Scripture err? Well, can God err? Can God be in error? No. Well, there you have it. Neither can His Word. On an apologetics uh, website, uh, an article by uh, a man called Eric Lyons uh, deals with this issue and he puts forward two simple solutions. And the first thing he says is that, well, God could have made both statements. Well, there's no problem there. The gospel writers did not always record everything uh, that was said at a certain event. And a case in point is right here at Jesus' baptism. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all record different things. Uh, None of those things are in conflict with each other, but they complement each other and help give the full picture. So God could have spoken two things. The second solution is that God spoke once, but those present heard two different things. Either God enabled them to hear differently, or they actually did hear differently. Uh, We see examples of that in Scripture. Um, uh, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul heard Jesus' words perfectly clearly. His companions heard uh, the sound, but they did not actually understand the voice. The plausibility of these solutions shows that there is no error in Scripture at this point. Indeed, there is no error in Scripture at any point because God is true and so is His Word. So, let's have a look at the message from heaven. The words of the Father to Jesus are an affirmation of of Jesus' sonship and they they also explain uh, the kind of Messiah that he will be. The words of the Father allude directly to two Old Testament scriptures and the first one 
uh, is Psalm chapter 2. And in verse 7 we read this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It, It speaks of God's sovereignty in appointing his earthly king. Uh, and in verse 7, the Davidic king, he reflects upon the day of his coronation, uh, the day that God set him apart as the anointed leader of Israel. And Psalm 2 is very much a messianic psalm. It points us to the Messiah because the words, they only find true fulfilment uh, in the uh, anointed one of God, the Messiah. Or every other king of Israel falls far short of what's described. Now, this psalm cannot be used to prove that Jesus became God's son at his baptism. No, again, Jesus is the eternal son of God. He has always been and always will be. Uh, Indeed, Jesus' own uh, acknowledgement that he is God's son and that God is his father, it points to his divinity and his eternality. Um, Remember the words uh, in John chapter 5 and in verse 18 where the Apostle John explains, uh, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So even the, the designation of father and son here point to the, the, that they share the essential nature of God together. So he is the eternal son of God. But his baptism, however, is the point in his earthly ministry where his person and work are first publicly acknowledged and affirmed. This is the point where everybody else can understand Oh, this is who he is. So that's Psalm 2. The second Old Testament uh, reading is from Isaiah 42. In verse 1 we read this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now if you're familiar with Isaiah, uh, this is the first of the four servant songs, the servant of the Lord. Uh, We read that in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then again chapter 52 to 53. Uh, It was through the servant of the Lord that God would fulfill his promises of restoration to Israel and, and those promises would extend to the Gentile world. But this salvation would occur through the suffering of this servant on behalf of his people. There was no other way around it. And this is highlighted particularly with Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. It would be through the servant's suffering that the promises of restoration would come about. And so the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism testifies that 
Jesus is God's son and God's king whose mission would lead to the cross. And the father is well pleased with his son because for all eternity past there has been nothing but love and faithfulness within the relationship of the Trinity. In these words in John 17 where Jesus prays to the Father. Verse 24 he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. And here it is. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, the Father in his omniscience knows there will be nothing but love and faithfulness as well. Hear Jesus' own testimony in John 5, 19, where Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever this Father does, that the Son does likewise. Well pleased because of that love and faithfulness for all eternity past and for all future to come. So at the Lord's arrival, we see an affirmation from the Father. And finally, number four, the Lord's arrival is marked by an assessment in the wilderness. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. See, the immediate tribute from heaven is then contrasted with an immediate testing in the wilderness. The Spirit who anointed Jesus now drives him out, casts him out to a place where this anointing might be proved faithful. The mention of the wilderness again brings us back to the Exodus once more, and we've seen that over the previous weeks. Just as Israel experienced testing for 40 years, so Jesus replicates in a way this testing in a figurative sense of 40 days. But it actually takes us even further back than that. See, the Israelites, they were born with a sinful nature, but there were two people who were not. And so it takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden. It takes us right back to Adam and Eve. See, they didn't begin uh, with a fallen, uh, sinful nature. They were like Christ in his humanity. But while they were while they failed their testing and they, they were tested in the beautiful garden, were they not? And they led humanity into sin and eternal death, while Christ would be tested not in the midst of the beautiful garden, but out in the wilderness. And he would succeed, eventually leading humanity to justification and eternal life. The wild animals are highlights the desolate nature of the wilderness and the presence of these ministering angels shows that after 40 days uh, in the remote terrain without any food and a battle with the devil Jesus in his humanity was physically and emotionally drained and in need of sustenance Matthew tells us that it was after the uh, testing with the devil 
that the angels came and helped him, most particularly with uh, bringing food for him. Matthew and Luke uh, explain in greater detail the nature of Satan's temptations. Uh, The focus was to get Jesus to avoid the path of suffering. He came to be the suffering servant, the devil tempting him to take another path. To let Jesus' divine nature overtake his human nature. But while Mark might not explain that right here in this verse, he does actually draw that out later in chapter 8. After Jesus explains to his disciples that he must suffer and die and rise again, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Not that way. No. There is another way that you can bring in the kingdom. Well, then in verse 33, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the incarnation, Jesus did not cease to be fully God, but he chose to lay down his divine prerogatives, his divine rights in obedience to the Father. We see that in that wonderful passage in Philippians 2. The temptation he faced in his humanity was to allow his divinity to shortcut the suffering that he must endure as a man. But thanks be to God that he did endure. For in his obedience to God, sinful men and women can receive a righteous standing before God through faith in him. Christ's endurance and faithfulness is emphasised further in that great passage from Hebrews 4, which highlights what Christ has done and how that can give great confidence to his people. I'm sure we all know this passage. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The arrival of the Lord is marked by some truly incredible events. But in drawing to a close, I want you to fully grasp and recognise that the beginning of the Lord Jesus' public ministry is surrounded and supported and sanctioned by all three members of the Trinity. This truth is wonderfully expressed in an extended quote from that great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Listen to his words. Try to picture yourselves the scene that our text describes. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon him in a visible shape, in appearance like a dove, and rests upon him. John says that it abode upon him, as though the Spirit was thenceforth to be his continual companion, and truly it was so. 
At the same time the dove descended and lighted upon Christ, there was heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was the voice of God the Father. He did not reveal himself in a bodily shape, but uttered wondrous words such as mortal ears had never heard before. The Father revealed himself, not to the eyes as the Spirit did, but to the ears. And the words he spoke clearly indicated that it was God the Father bearing witness to his beloved Son. So that the entrance of Christ upon his public ministry on earth was the chosen opportunity for the public manifestation of the intimate union between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune God has acted decisively through Christ's arrival in this world. He has rendered the heavens and made his presence known. And so the question is, Will you be among those who have ears to hear and eyes to see? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these incredible words that we have looked at this morning in your word. Father, we thank you for that event of Christ's baptism and the, the visual testimony and the verbal testimony from Father and Spirit to the Son. Father, we thank you that in this uh, baptism, Christ uh, accepted his mission, and we are so ever thankful for that. We're thankful that that mission pointed towards the cross and more so to the resurrection, where his sinless, uh, sinlessness would be vindicated and proved right, and his sacrifice uh, would enable us, sinners, to have our sins forgiven in him and to be declared, declared righteous before you because of Christ. Father, help us to dwell on these things as we head into this week, to recognise that the Lord has arrived. Father, may he, uh, through your spirit, enliven our hearts and our minds Uh, that we may be faithful to this Lord. In his precious name we pray. Amen.